Luke chapter 2, beginning in verse 39. Um, as we said, we get uh, the continuing story. Now, this is just a passing verse to let us know that there is a change of scenery that happens. But in this verse, we also find that there's like a fast forward of like basically, uh, you know, 11 years that happens. Um, in verse 39, we see that they were faithful. They did all that they were required to do. Mary, Joseph, and Jesus did all that they were required to do according to the law of the Lord. It's noted for us there in verse 39. And then they returned into Galilee to their own town of Nazareth. So if you recall, they went from Nazareth to Bethlehem, from Bethlehem to Jerusalem, from Jerusalem now back to Nazareth. And so they go, they perform these rites of, of purification, of dedication, and then they return home to Nazareth. And then we get this one summary verse here in verse 40 that lets us know that uh, basically 11 years go by at this time, 12 years-ish, um, somewhere in here, go by at this time. We're, we're told this, the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of uh, God was upon him. What this tells us, one, is that Luke is making a point that Jesus is, is not just a holy God, but he is holy man. He is 100% God, but he is also 100% man. Just like us, he, he had to grow. He was born a child, but yet grew and went through all the various seasons of, of uh, human development, of physical development, learning to walk, learning to talk, learning to play. Uh, you know, learning to to work with his hands, becoming, you know, a, an apprentice. Um, and, and so as he goes through these various stages of life, uh, Luke is letting us know that he experienced these things. And, and this tells us that he is able to sympathize with us, as the book of Hebrews tells us in chapter four, he's able to sympathize with us in our weaknesses and our hardships, because he experienced the, the totality of the human condition of what it is to go through life, to experience hardships and difficulties, to um, learn to walk. He's able to uh, be someone who can sympathize with us in every stage of our growth. And as we grow, he can meet us there in each portion. Now, he didn't only become uh, physically strong. He didn't only go through um, life in uh, that uh, process, but rather he also was, we're told explicitly, filled with wisdom, right? Now, there's a very uh, practical understanding of what we can mean there as relates to the previous section. He became strong, he grew physically, and then he learned how to apply himself to this. But the text actually speaks here a little bit more specifically to this is a type of, of spiritual wisdom, a, an, a, a, um, a deeper perception of God's will. As he grew in faith, uh, he had a, a, a deeper perception of what God was doing, about how he was working. He was more aware. And so he was, he was filled with this wisdom constantly, and we're told that the favor of God was upon him. Just like uh, Mary was this object of, of God's special attention, as she was this person who God said, I'm going to do a special work in you, Mary. My favor is upon you. So we also find that Jesus has this spiritual favor with God as well. He's the object of God's attention, and he is someone who is walking with God in dependence 
on the Holy Spirit. He's sp um, investing spiritually. He's learning the scriptures. He's spending time in prayer. He's desiring to obey God. And so uh, Jesus is going through the same types of progressions that you and I might experience that we are learning to navigate in life. It's not just that, uh, you know, he had a special circumstance and did everything apart from anything that we could identify with, but rather uh, he did these things in such a way so as he might identify with us. This was the purpose of his humility, of coming as, uh, as a man, coming in, uh, in the form of a servant, someone who would not have uh, the access to the greatest privileges in life, but rather would be someone who was starting at one of the lower portions of the, of the social ladder and, and being able to navigate that and relate to everybody. And so this is Jesus's plan in place. Now, in that one verse, as I said, we get about 11, 12 years go by. Uh, we find here, um, in verse 41, we pick up the next journey, the next story, right? So let, let me trace out for you what has, has happened um, thus far before we jump into it. Uh, we find that there is, uh, the Lord comes to Mary and says, you're going to have a child, right? He says that uh, this will be your firstborn, that, that he will be... Um, uh, having a particular role. And so this, this uh, it's called out explicitly that Jesus is the firstborn, that he is born to Mary. Of course, it, as we've remarked earlier, it would have been obvious that he would have been the firstborn um, because Mary's never had a child before, but it's, it's uh, putting a little bit of breadcrumbs there in place for us to return to later. But then also we find that uh, that connection begins to be made later in this first trip that they make from Bethlehem to, or excuse me, from yeah, from Bethlehem to Jerusalem, for the um, dedication of Jesus and the consecration of the firstborn, where they would go through that ceremony. Uh, but now um, Jesus is at the age where he's going to make his way back to Jerusalem for a feast. Here's how it's described for us in Luke chapter 2, verse 41. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up according to custom. So uh, at this time, and, and according to the law, Jewish men were required to keep three annual feasts. Uh, there were three feasts that were the main observations uh, in Jerusalem, and they were required to keep these three feasts. But there was one feast that was more important than the rest, and that is the Feast of Passover. And as the law lays this out, men were required to go. And, and women weren't required to go on this journey, but the fact that uh, Mary goes, the fact that um, other women make this journey is a, uh, it's a mark of their commitment to the Lord. They're not required to go, but they're saying, you know, I really want to be there. There's no uh, law that says they have to be there, but it's a posture of the heart that says there's no place that I would rather be than here celebrating the feast of Passover. Uh, there's, a, there's a posture of the heart that happens here. And so for Mary to go, it tells us that she had this same posture, that she is um, there. And so we find that the whole family goes, the whole family, Mary, Joseph, and Jesus, they make their way um, to celebrate the feast of Passover. 
Now, at this time, it would also be where other families would make their way as well. And so there would be, um, you know, in, in, in this time, there would be about 60 to 100,000 people who would be traveling into Jerusalem, which, which on average at this era would be holding about 20,000 people, 25,000-ish people. So the city would just be absolutely packed. It, it, it would be swelling with visitors for the feast. And so they would make their way here to this particular region to celebrate the feast. And it was, uh, it was a longer journey, particularly because um, Jews of this time didn't want to take the the shortcuts that would be going through Samaria because they hated the Samaritans. And so the journey ends up being about like an 80 mile journey because they're going to go out of their way to go around uh, Samaria. And so they would travel here, uh, you know, for three or four days to make their way to Jerusalem. And they come, as I said, to ex to explicitly to celebrate the most important feast on the calendar, the Feast of Passover. And so they were, it was called out in the law in the, um, in the book of Deuteronomy chapter 16, uh, uh, that they were to travel to Jerusalem, that they were to offer a lamb as a sacrifice, and that this feast uh, would begin at, at sunset. It would begin at the same time uh, at that um, Israel's departure from Egypt began. This is meant to mirror what happened in Exodus chapter 12 uh, and 13. And so this is a kind of an, a, an annual commemoration of what God has done historically for his people, that there were a people who were in bondage, who were enslaved, who were unable to save themselves, but yet God comes in as the deliverer and he rescues his people with his own mighty hand. He pulls them out of Egypt uh, and he does this um, through the work of uh 10 plagues, uh, you know, culminating in this pinnacle of the 10th plague of the death of the firstborn. And so we find here that as the, in the book of Exodus, as the, um, this angel goes out and brings execution to the firstborn of all in the land of Egypt, we're told that there are those who are within the house uh, the houses that are covered with the blood of this particular uh, lamb, that this uh, lamb and the blood that covers it would allow the passing over of uh, this angel who would bring death to the firstborn. And so that's where the phrase, the, the Passover begins. And so they're coming here and uh, at this time uh, to celebrate this freedom that, that this results in. They're coming here to celebrate that God has provided a way for his people to escape this judgment. Uh, and, and this is the, the time, the moment, the culture that Jesus is heading into. And so when he arrives it, at verse 42, we're told he's 12 years old. He's at the age for um, a boy becoming a man. He's, he's entering in here to the, the final year of his life before he becomes a man within Jewish culture. When he turns 13, he will, um, he will be inducted into the community as uh, a full-fledged member, a man. And so he's here learning, sitting as a pupil. He's here acting in the religious community and soaking in this uh, 
you know, this, this ceremony, this, this feast. And so as he's there, he experiences this over the period of time of this feast. Uh, but the real story begins after the feast. Verse 43, and when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it, but supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey. But then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances. <clears throat> and when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. So we find here uh, that the feast ends, this 60 you know, to 100,000 people come in to town for this. And now uh, the feast is over and a caravan of people is heading back out. Uh, at this time, th these groups of people would would travel together, you know, one for, for safety. Uh, so that way there wouldn't be uh, robbers coming in and trying to, you know, um, hijack them and take and steal from them. And so they would travel in these large caravans together um, and um, it kind of just made the journey a little bit more pleasant. And so as they made their way, Mary and Joseph aren't really worried about Jesus. They're not like looking around being like, hey, like we're walking and, you know, we're doing our thing. Like they're, they're talking and enjoying themselves. And, and the likelihood is that um, they would have, it would have been uh, common practice there for uh, people to kind of just be navigating up and down the, the caravan. It's not moving very quickly. So uh, Jesus perhaps naturally could have been somewhere along the caravan, maybe with other, other people his age or um, with friends or with people he had just met. You know, it would have been a very natural process. And this was probably the same process that um, was experienced on the way into Jerusalem. He probably was hanging out with the other kids his age and spending time with them um, and, you know, maybe with maybe with friends. And so as they make their way, they, they realize, like, we're not really sure where he's at. Like, we're kind of getting to the in the end of this first day. We're the caravan's slowing down. We're all going to kind of circle up and settle down here, and um, you know, kind of set up camp for the night. But as they begin to do so, they're like, "Where the heck is Jesus? Like, he is nowhere around here." Um, there is there is like a particular. Uh, feeling that you get when like all of a sudden like you can't find your kid that you're not able to uh like see where they're at in the middle of like it's time to 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 kind of end the day and so uh the result here is that they begin to go look for him uh, we're told in verse 44 they thought he was in the group and then they go to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances um Obviously, this is the um, best place for them to look with friends and uh, family. This is where that he would have uh, been found, but they don't find him. And so it prompts further investigation. Look at verse 45. And when they did not find him, they returned, uh, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. And after three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. So they go back there. They don't see him. They return to Jerusalem. They continue to the search. They make their way back. And then we find in verse 46, 
This takes three days. After three days, after three days, they find him, right? Now, this isn't um, three days of searching in Jerusalem. This is three days, uh, you know, more explicitly from the time that they leave um, leave Jerusalem the first time to head home. There's, you know, kind of a, a, a day out leaving with the caravan out towards, back towards Nazareth. And then second day is turning around and making up that day. And then the third day, like looking around the city, like, where is this kid? Right. And so there's three days. Number one, it's like, what the heck? Like, where was Jesus? Like that whole time? Was he like, where was he stay? Like, was he just like kicking it the whole time? He didn't have a place to stay. I mean, it was very much the, um, it's very much like the, becomes the pattern of his life that he has no place to lay his head. So it would not have been uncommon for this to see this as a, a bit of foreshadowing here, but, but nevertheless, he um, is here for three days and where they find him, we're told is in the temple. Now um, this is speaking to the temple uh, kind of region, the temple complex, not inside like the temple 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 like the he's not like in the holy place right he's not like just in there like in the holy of holies no he is in this temple complex this area was used not just for sacrifice um not just for the um for the practice of uh preparing the sacrifices and um and keeping the regular temple rituals alive but also uh was used as a place of instruction of religious teaching and discussions uh you find in the book of acts that this is called out as well and in, in acts chapter five you see some of this description um but we find here that when when we see jesus uh he is here at the temple and he's sitting among the teachers listening to them and asking them questions and all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers so I want you to see this. Jesus comes in and he is sitting with the religious leaders. He's sitting with the teachers. He's observing them. He's listening to them. He's letting them instruct. He's taking the place of a normal child. Any, he's fitting exactly in. Exactly what a normal uh, child of this age would be doing. He's sitting there in humility, in quietness, listening and learning from these teachers. He's uh, engaging in discussion with them. He's asking questions clearly because they're, uh, we're told here that they're um, amazed at his understanding and his answers. He's, he's going back and forth and explaining these things. And, and we find that the impression that is given here is that there are those who are listening and they are amazed at his understanding. They are taken back at his under that his wisdom, right? And this this is um, remarkable because he's showing promise beyond his age. Uh, but I want you to see here that he's not coming in to try to just be like a hot shot and try to set everybody straight from the beginning right here. He's coming in to say, what are you sharing? What is the, what is the expectation? What are, what are the things that you're, um, what are the questions that are being asked? And he's listening and responding. Uh, I wonder if he's actually teaching from a distance by asking his questions, um, by, and by the way that he answers. Um, but nevertheless, he is not trying to come in and tell these guys like, oh, you're explaining it incorrectly. 
He's letting them explain. He's letting them teach. He's letting them instruct. And the people who might have been doing this have, might have been totally right on. They might have been explaining it in such a way that it was bringing Jesus glory right there and the explanation of, uh, of the scriptures. And as he's sitting there, his parents come up on him and they're like, what in the world is going on? Verse 48 tells us that they are astonished, right? And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to, <clears throat> said to him, son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you with great distress. Now, <clears throat> they see him, they discover that he's there and are a bit taken back. They're like, what is going on? How, why are you here? What is, what is, it's, it's in some senses, it's a natural expectation of a parent. It's a natural expectation to just be like, where in the world have you been? Like, we have been worried sick. We've been looking for you. Like, what is going on? Right. And, and so when, when, it, when Mary says, like, we've been searching for you in great distress, she's saying, like, we've been super anxious. We've been worried. Like, we have, the, have like, this, this deep mental pain and anguish that, like, what, what, where were you? What happened to you? Like you disappeared. We, we wanted to take care of you. We wanted to make sure that, um, you know, your needs were being met. We want to make sure that you were safe, that you were secure. And so she's asking him like, why, why did you, why did you do this? Why, why have you, why, why have you done this to us? Right. That's what, that's what, that's how um, she starts. But he responds back in verse 49. He said to them, why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? So <laughs> just catch this, okay? This, these are the very first words of Jesus in the, in the gospel of Luke, right? We don't get like some grand pronouncement that's like some majestic statement that's like making all of these like where he's like, declaring like i am the lord god and like you shall recognize like his opening statement is in in the gospel of luke really what he does is he brings one question back to her and then he brings one statement back to her that's framed as a question right like this becomes prototypical jesus way if anybody asks him a question he asks them a question back like this is just his tactic this is what always happens you ask him a question, the scribes and the Pharisees are like, hey, like, you know, blah, 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 blah. And he comes back with like asking them a question. He always like hits back in that way. It's, he's, there's, this, there's this deeper, like, I'm trying to, to put the question back on you and asking you to search your motives at the same time. And so Jesus's first words recorded in the gospel of Luke are, are questions. The first words that we get are, why were you looking for me? And then we get the second one. That's the statement framed as a question. Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? Right. It's kind of supposed to be like a, like a rhetorical there. Right. So the first one, first thing he says, let's deal with his one question. His first question that he asks, why were you looking for me? His, his mom and his dad show up 
and they're like, hey, we've been worried sick. We're looking for you. Like, we've been looking for you for three days. And he comes back and he says, why were you looking for me? <laughs> why would they be looking for Jesus? Well, it's of course because he was their son. Like, yeah, you're looking for your kid. That's why. But more so because it was the assumption and expectation of this particular son to be operating under cultural and societal family rules, right? The, the Mary and Joseph expected Jesus to be with them because of his relationship to them as their son. We expect you to be with us, Jesus, because you're our son. And so, of course, we're looking for you. We expect you to be with us all the time because you're in our family. You belong to us. And so we expect that you're here. This is any any other good Jewish kid would be would be with their parents right now. They would be sticking close to them on the journey. They would be, you know, walking along this route in the caravan with them. And it's not that their relationship with Jesus was not true, right? Jesus is indeed uh, the son, but there was something more true. There's something more true. And this is what Jesus is getting at when he says, why are you looking for me? He says, you're looking for your son. But Jesus is the only begotten son from the true father, right? So that's why when in verse 48, Mary says, behold, your father and I have been searching for you, right? And then Jesus responds in verse, um, in verse 48, or excuse me, in verse 49 back, he says, mom, I heard you say your father and I have been searching for you. But Jesus responds back and says, I must be in my father's house, right? He brings his statement back to her. It's framed as a question, right? He, he explains back to her, did you not know that I must be in my father's house? You're asking me to be in in uh, in your household. And it's true that I belong to your household, but he's, he's revealing here that he has a strong sense of understanding of his mission, of his character, of his identity with the Father. He's fully aware of his identity as the Son of God. He's not confused. He's, he says, I get that you want me to be in, uh, you know, that, that you and my father have been looking for me, but he's like, but I'm in my father's house. I'm in my father's house. He's already committed to the mission that God has sent him to do. He's He says, I've got to be here in the Lord's house where God's presence is, uh, is residing, where people are speaking about him. And so what he's essentially saying here is, I'm putting my relationship with God the Father first. Although I'm going to continue to obey Mary and Joseph, although I'm going to continue to obey you parents, my primary relationship is with God the Father. My primary understanding of how I will navigate life is with God the Father. I delight to do his will. I delight to obey him, right? Now, he says this to them, and they're a little bit perplexed. Verse 50, and they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. Like, they didn't get it. They're like, this guy's just using some crazy, like, you know, preteen language here. He's got some like cryptic remarks. 
that are, we don't understand. This is maybe this is like some youthful language, you know, but what it's indicating is that Jesus has a particular purpose, a particular desire, a particular role, and he just has spiritual maturity and character that goes beyond their understanding. He understands his role. He understands what he is going to be doing. Now, we're told that they didn't understand, and he was aware that they didn't understand, but then he returns with them, verse 51. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And Mary treasured up all these things in her heart. So this becomes, this one particular incident here, it becomes just that one particular incident. Jesus goes back home to Nazareth with his parents at 12 years of age. He uh, submits himself to his parents. He listens to them. He operates under them, but he's made his point that I have a deeper relationship, that I have a father that is more truly my father, that, um, that I relate to, that this is my primary relationship. And Mary, we're told again for the second time, that she treasured up all these things in her heart. She observes the events again. She's putting the pieces of the puzzle together, just like she was in the previous events. She doesn't take offense at it. She doesn't say like, like she's not offended by it, but rather she reflects on it. She's trying to figure it out still. She, she collects it and, and treasured, treasured up all these things in her heart. So now these things are like kind of marinating in the back of her mind as she begins to continue to see the life of Jesus. He's left her these little, these little breadcrumbs that will lead her back to him, back to what he said he is doing. Verse 52, and Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. So this passage is bookended by these two verses, right? Earlier in the beginning of the um of the text in verse 40, we're told that the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. Now, as we come to verse 52, we're told Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. Again, remarking upon his true humanity, that he's 100% man, 100% God, that he increases in, in physical growth. Uh, he continues to go through the daily progressions of life. He is uh, continuing in his mental growth and spiritual discernment. He's increasing in wisdom, uh, but he's also increasing in favor with God and in man. He has social growth. He has spiritual growth kind of collectively coming alongside uh, together. This was a process that continues on. This was something that um, that Mary got to witness and to see over time. But I wonder if that, that, that in the midst of all of this, seeing this increase in wisdom, seeing uh, you know Jesus 
heading off to work with Joseph, you know, in the morning to go through um, the process of, of learning a skill, learning a trade, in the process of Jesus heading off to the synagogue to uh, be instructed in the ways of, uh, of the scriptures and uh, becoming a man in the process of the community. I wonder in the midst of all of those things, if like, she's like thinking back, like, remember that one time when we lost Jesus, <laughs> like, when we couldn't find him, like, where'd he go? But all of a sudden he's still here doing these things, all of those things, like kind of marinating in the back of her mind, letting those things just, just floating around there. But I imagine that that helped her understand. It helped her see that he has a mission. He has a purpose. He has a goal in what he's trying to do, what he's trying to accomplish. And his goal is not for himself, but rather he has, remember, it was told to her that he would be the savior, that he, she's, she's, she has the insight uh, that, you know, not many would have had. She had that opportunity, that insight to see these things. Now, for you and I, we get the benefit of seeing all these things in hindsight. We get the benefit from gleaning from the scriptures and seeing that Jesus has said who he is. He has demonstrated who he is uh, through his perfect life, perfect work uh, at the cross, his death, his resurrection for our sake. All of these things we get to be the recipients of. We get to look back at history and see a life of faithfulness. We get to see these things. And we're told, uh, you know, that, that Jesus gives us himself, that he goes with us, that he leads his church. That as we walk through the life uh, of a Christian, that he goes with us. As we caravan together, towards the heavenly kingdom, right? As we caravan together through life, a lot of times, uh, we are, we know that he will be with us. But in some senses, a lot of times, we end up getting in the same situation that Mary and Joseph did, right? We're in a caravan, but all of a sudden, we don't know where our caravan's going, and all of a sudden, we lost Jesus, in the midst of like our travels, during the business of our day, during our like decision-making process, all of a sudden, like we're out here making decisions on our own. All of a sudden, we're out here, you know, traveling on our own. We're out here doing our own, making our own decisions. We're out here, you know, in the middle of our, uh, going through like the business of life, going through, you know, our, navigating relationships, navigating, you know, uh, family issues, navigating sicknesses. All of a sudden, we've caravaned out away from Jesus. And a lot of times we don't even realize it until it's too late. Like we're losing sight of where he's at, where all of a sudden we've lost him. We're not recognizing him in our, in our daily lives. We're, we're breaking fellowship with him through sin or, you know, uh, sins that we commit or, or sins that um, we participate in by failing to do what he's asked us to do. There's a great many ways that we tend to, just move on without him because we expect him to be with us, 
right? It's kind of like that, that attitude that we can often have where we kind of want something, we want to do something, we have a plan for something and we're like, okay, like I think this is what I want to do. And then at the last minute, we're like, we're trying to submit it to the Lord for like approval. Can you approve this? Uh, I came up with this whole great plan. It would be great if you could just like sign off on it. Um, kind of there as a, as a last minute, like insurance policy, like, yep, I came up with this great idea. And now uh, I'm looking for your uh, final approval to make sure that this is going to be a complete success. Because what happens is we expect to find his approval and his blessing over all of our decisions and ventures that we begin. It's an expectation that we hold because why would God not, you know, give those things to us? Why would he not uh, sign off on every single one of our asks? And oftentimes, like we, we can falsely believe that, that he's opening doors or, or making a way because we want to move at our speed and go our own way. We're trying to move at, at our own personal desires instead of trying to find out what's going on. The reality is, by the time we realize it, by the time we realize like that's where things are at, we realize like, oh, we've moved on without him. We like our caravan is left. We are, we're on our way back. We're headed in a different direction. And then what happens is we, we get frustrated. We get upset. We start to get anxious. And then we are the people who end up returning to Jesus or trying to find him and be like, where the heck were you? I was in great distress and I was searching for you. Where were you? Right? Isn't that what happened uh, in, in John chapter 11 there where, where uh, Jesus's um, friends uh, are like Mary and Martha and Lazarus and Lazarus is dying and, and, and they're like trying to send word to him and then Jesus, and Lazarus dies and Jesus shows up and they're like, where were you? They're like all mad at him. Like they're in great distress. Where were you? And we are people who tend to ask him that question. Like, I needed you to do something. I came up with this great plan and it was contingent upon like a specific timing. So it would have been great if you would have shown up and signed off on it on the particular time. So I could have got what I needed. We can often have that same perspective that Mary and Martha have when they are mad at Jesus for not showing up before Lazarus dies. But as we come to him and we ask that question, I've been searching for you with great distress. Where have you been? We always encounter his response. And his response to us is always the same that we find here in our text this morning. Why were you looking for me? Why were you looking for me? That question that comes back to us exposes our motives. Why are you trying to find him? Is it because you want to manipulate him to get what you need, which is so often our goal, our plan? Hey, if you could sign off on our thing, why are you looking for him? Why are you trying to find him? You see, his response here lets us know that he's not going to let us move him into our desired location. You can't add him. You can't add Jesus to our ideas, our plans, our purposes, even the secular world, you can't take him and add him to like 
their philosophies or their religions and be like, oh yeah, we'll kind of incorporate a little bit of Jesus and we'll sprinkle a little bit of Jesus on this. And like, he can be a good moral teacher over here, over there. He just, he won't stand for that. It doesn't, it doesn't work. He says, if you want to find me, you know where to find me. Why were you looking for me? I'm not going to come to go bless your mess. He says, did you not know that I must be in my father's house? If you want to find him, he's going to be in his father's house. The place of worship. He's going to be in this particular place. He is going to be in the place where you can always find him. What happens at the father's house? Sacrifice and instruction in the word. Worship and knowledge of who he is drawing near to him, growing near to him, right? Remember, Jesus has put this place at this time, like, like this has been put in place in a particular time, in a particular location, in a particular time of year, in a particular feast for a reason, so that we might understand always where to find him and where we need to encounter him in the Father's house, right? Remember, this is based on the Feast of Passover, right? What were the instructions for the Feast of Passover? Back in Exodus chapter 12, uh, the instructions go out from the Lord to Israel, to, or to Moses to dis disperse to Israel. And they're told this, tell all the congregation of Israel on that, on the, uh, that on the 10th day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's house. A lamb for a household. Right? There it is. Okay. A lamb from the flocks of Israel have to come into the father's house. Then a couple of verses later, the firstborn becomes protected by this lamb. Exodus chapter 12, verse 12, for I will pass through the land of Egypt that night and I will strike the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. So the firstborn of, of the houses of Israel or, or any who would participate in, in all of Egypt would be protected by this lamb being brought into the father's house. That lamb would be slain and then the firstborn would be protected. Then we turn the page in Exodus chapter 12 to Exodus chapter 13. And what do we get? The consecration of the firstborn. The Lord said to Moses, consecrate to me all the firstborn, whatever is the first to open the womb among the people of Israel, both of man and beast is mine. So now he earns the right. He receives the right to all the firstborn. He says, these belong to me. Now we Fast forward the tape all the way up to Luke chapter two. And we get now the redemption of the firstborn. After 40 days, Mary and Joseph and Jesus head up to Jerusalem from, uh, from Bethlehem. They go through the rites of uh, the ceremony of purification. According to the law of Moses, they bring him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. Uh, and, we, as we looked at last week in verse 23 of Luke chapter 2, we're told that 
as it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. So here's the consecration of the firstborn. Jesus is being given over to the Lord to say, he belongs to you. Then they leave the city. The next time they come into the city, the lamb enters the father's house for the first time. He tells Mary and Joseph, why are you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? The firstborn enters into the father's house now for the first time to be a part of that, right? And later, as we come back to the text on, uh, it, uh, on Palm Sunday at the triumphal entry, we will find that the lamb enters the father's house for the last time for in that Passover week. But see, the idea, the point of this, right, is for freedom, for redemption, for you and I, because we are the type of people to lose Jesus. And he wants to make sure that we're not trying to say, hey, Jesus, um, we're in charge of you. You come along and be a part of our family. We're in charge of you. Uh, you know, we're taking our caravan over here. He's trying to remind us constantly that we're a part of his family. Not that we can import him into our lives, but that he belongs or that we belong to him, that he's redeeming us, that he's saving us. The, Israel has not figured out yet that the firstborn and the lamb at Passover will indeed be the, uh, the, the same thing at some point, right? When we find, when we get to the final week to the crucifixion, we find that finally the Lord says, you know what? Uh, the firstborn belongs to me. And now, instead of letting him be redeemed, I'm going to offer him as the sacrifice. I'm going to give my lamb so that I might bring many sons to glory. I might bring many people into my family. This is about uh, setting, setting things straight for you and I so that we might understand that we can't manipulate him, that we can't control him, but that we belong to him, that we're in his family, right? Let's end with Jesus's own words his own words that remind us that we belong in his family, that we are with him. He's not with us. We're with him. We end with his very words in John 14. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. Right? There it is laid out. Don't have anxiety. Don't have worry. Don't have fear. Believe in God. Believe in me. This is what he's been trying to say this whole time. Then he says this, in my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you that I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. You see, we go to him. He's in his father's house. He's prepared a place for us. He's making this point the whole time. I've got to be about at my father's house because I'm making a place for you guys here. I'm making room for you here. I'm trying to get a place, uh, the opportunity for you to be with me forever. Because I know that you people, you're prone to go your own way. You're prone to do your own thing. It's a high likelihood that you're going to go and chase your own dreams. You're going to go try to find your own way. He says, look, I know that you're only going to be satisfied. You're only going to have be, be secure with me. And so I'm going to prepare a place for you. 
And so we end this, uh, this journey, not with just the lamb in his house, in the father's house by himself, but rather the people of the lamb in the father's house, that we belong to him and we are with him in his father's house. And so with that, we see Jesus is doing a whole lot more here in the book of Luke. And we realize he's setting forth these, uh, these little breadcrumbs so that we might have confidence that we're in his family, that we belong to him. And in that we rejoice. Let's pray. Lord, we are thankful for your kindness and that you have given us your everlasting love. And Lord, how gracious you are to make a place for us in your, in your own home, to welcome us in with open arms, to receive us unto yourself, not through the work of our own hands, but through your perfect work that you've accomplished on our behalf. And Lord, we recognize your work and we give you all the glory because we haven't participated when we were dead in our sins and trespasses, Lord, you, um, you rescued us. You raised us to life. And so Lord, we rejoice in the truth of the scriptures. We rejoice that our names are written in the book of life. And we look forward to that day where we will meet you and see you face to face. And so Lord, be glorified as we lift our voices to you now. We love you. Amen.